Hey, this is Regan Bach, Managing Partner at Better Faster Further. And I wanted to take a second to welcome you to the Better Faster Further podcast. Whether this is your first episode or if you've been with us since the beginning, we're so thankful that you're here. We know that time is limited and we truly appreciate each and every one of you and want to thank you for listening. Hey everyone, this is Adam Odosky. I'm part of the core team at Better Faster Further and co-host of the podcast. With every episode, we'll feature inspiring stories from bright business minds, accomplished athletes, and inspiring leaders. We'll provide insights, tools, and takeaways to help you expand your capacity. We'll also take it a step further and really try to uncover the deep, hard to reach, and often unexplored places of the human experience. Things like overcoming obstacles, failure, facing fears, pushing through the hard stuff, and ultimately highlighting the growth, opportunity, and lessons learned that comes from choosing the path less traveled. As a serial entrepreneur and now executive coach, ultra endurance athlete, and health coach, I know these discussions are worth their weight in gold. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Better, Faster, Further podcast. I am super excited about today's guest. My friend and colleague, Michael Perman, is joining us. And Michael is a professional futurist who's devoted his career to helping large organizations perceive what's coming over the horizon and then really uh, inspiring innovation to kind of intersect with those opportunities. Michael's the CEO of Say What LLC, the mindful innovation firm based in Portland, Oregon. Michael's brand experience includes companies like Levi's, Adidas, Banana Republic, Hyatt, Hershey's, Nike, Pottery Barn, Stoller Winery, and the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Michael is awesome also at keynote speaking and is a sought-after keynote speaker and workshop leader. He also happens to be an author. Uh, He wrote a book called Craving the Future, Transforming Our Deepest Desires into New Realities. It's a great book. Check it out. We'll, We'll talk more about that. And he's currently leveraging his culinary expertise and training to become a certified sommelier, a man of many trades. I love that. Uh, He'll be co-leading a very interesting workshop uh, with our friends Chip Connolly and Jeff Hamoey at the Modern Elder Academy in Baja, Mexico, coming up next month, I believe. Uh, And it's called Being Present for Your Future. Michael comes to us live today from Portland, Oregon. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you on board. Thank you, Regan. It's a pleasure to be here with you and to uh, see you again. Absolutely. We, we've we stayed in touch over the years. I was just talking to Adam before the podcast, and it's been a decade, I think. You know, it was prior to me even being or having started Better, Faster, Further, I believe. So um, you, you I, I lose track of time. You may be better about that. I'm excited. We're going to dig in on a bunch of topics today, so we might as well just kind of kind of dive in there. I first was introduced... To you, Michael, you had you, you had worked at, at Levi's Strauss for I think almost a decade and had a role at Gap. Um, I believe you were the senior direct you were a senior director at that time and kind of the dean of global innovation for them. You picked me out of a lineup somehow to be uh, your executive coach, and I remember doing some really good work with you at the time. And it was an interesting time at Gap because there was honestly. There was a lot going on inside of the company. I remember CEO changes and leadership changes and some reorgs happening. But then even beyond that, there were like tectonic shifts kind of happening in the industry at the time around, you know, supply chain. And I think that's when Zara and a few others were, were, were blossoming and coming up and this whole notion of fast fashion. I remember one of our discussions being really focused on how long it took for Gap to like, you know, we're going to we're going to decide that yellow is going to be hot next fall and then it was like a year later and if yellow wasn't hitting you're you're in a lot of trouble whereas you know some of these other companies were able to you know decrease the time it would take from from idea into kind of clothing hitting the market and i just remember lots of conversations in that space which really spearheaded a lot of the work that you did in in kind of the global innovation piece so yeah it was it was an awesome time we've stayed in touch and a lot has happened since your time at Gap. So I'm curious to pass you the mic and get you introduced and maybe you can share a little bit more about, you know, your professional trajectory and kind of uh, events in life have brought you to where you are today and and we'll just dive into the dialogue. You know, maybe we start with just that tenure at Gap a little bit and then maybe we rewind the clock and kind of start from the beginning. But um, I could use some refreshing on just kind of, you know, where were you at that time? What was going on in the industry? And maybe you can refresh my memory on kind of the overlap that you and I had as well. 
apparel, you know, is around half of my career and the other half is food and culinary. We can talk about that later. I will just start with what I learned from the cumulative experience of, of Gap and Levi's together. And I think what it means to have roots, what it means to have values, uh, what it means to have the depth of experience and cultural relevancy. And overall, if I look at those two organizations, Levi's versus Gap, Levi's has deep values, deep roots. Uh, they pay attention to cultural relevance. Definitely, they missed a few things in their history, uh, which is, you know, I, I came in in 2001, and, you know, that was after four consecutive years of billion-dollar losses, which is significant. But they went back to understanding their consumers. They went back to uh, strengthening their understanding and the application of their values. And they, you know, they play the long game, and they've thrived in the environment despite all the machinations of fast fashion that hurt Gap. Gap, on the other hand, I think they've struggled. They've certainly struggled with um, uh, some of their key brands in staying relevant, but they've also struggled as an organization in terms of how anchored they are in their values. Um, they're a multi-brand organization, and, and a couple of their brands, I think, have thrived. Athleta was a very relevant brand that started. I think they probably had two stores <laughs> when I first started, and now they, they're about, a, a, I think they're a $2 billion brand. So they, they tuned into a very relevant market. Banana Republic went when they were struggling. I helped them get back to their roots, identify the core elements of their brand through history that made them famous. And now uh, Banana Republic is positioning themselves very much like they were in their best moments. So, you know, some of the questions are, when were you at your best? How do your roots uh, and the soul of your brand, how do you leverage that to a better place? And then how does that impact the organization overall? Uh, and so it was a really good learning experience overall. Levi's, I think, has managed it a lot more effectively than Gap. Yeah, and it was interesting, again, during that time, I think what you just said is, is, is well said. You know, the dynamics at, at Gap were fascinating for me as an outsider coming in in regards to, you know, kind of the, the global CEO, but then there's CEOs of each of the business units and some performing very well and some, you know, maybe struggling or in times of transition, but like that's a very dynamic kind of component. And then you've got folks who, who kind of cut across all of those maybe you being one around kind of global innovation and supply chain stuff and so how that all integrates. But it was definitely a challenging window of time. And I remember multiple leaders, if, if I remember correctly, kind of coming in and out during a four or five year period, which is hard, even if they're great leaders, just to have that kind of transitions at the top is, is, is a tough pill to swallow at times. It's important to be balanced. And even though, you know, Gap had a lot of operational issues uh, to deal with that uh, were the impact of fast fashion, like you mentioned, the yellow dress in Texas kind of thing, which is really, really true. But at the same time, when you're doing that work, you have to understand humans, understand humans in terms of consumers, but also understand the humans who, who work there. I mean, I was fortunate to have a really great couple of bosses there uh, when I started. And, and I think the CEO that I was under leading the company at the time was fantastic, Glenn Murphy. And, and Jack Calhoun and Eric Siberson, who was kind of my core. Um, and they were very pro-innovation. And we, we built a really strong um, innovation function and trained around 30 people to be these, we call them innovation acrobats. And so we were building the capability and they were very supportive. And I'm delighted that if I see the career trajectory of the people who were on that team, my innovation acrobat team, they've all done really, really well. They've all progressed in their career. And that's heartwarming to me. I think um, over time when a uh, new CEO came, you know, the sort of the emphasis on innovation diminished. And I think after that, they, they struggled and, you know, they're struggling to this day. So, you know, innovation requires stamina. And uh, it, you're not going to have wins overnight. It requires the development of people and systems and some patience and stamina to stick with strategies and to realize that some really great innovations take time. Some happen right away. But you need the balance and you need the empathy of people to make it happen. 
it's interesting to hear you say that. Like, I, I guess I believe it intuitively, but I've never really thought about it. Like, you almost have to build a culture of innovation, right? Like, there needs to be bedrock and foundational components to support that. Because I think a lot of people at times think of innovation as like the next idea versus like the implementation and follow through of that. As you say, in some of these companies require literally years of effort and sustained effort and a culture to support that, right? That's interesting. The magic of innovation happens when courage and curiosity come together, right? And so part of it is, is, is you know, my belief of innovation my definition is the ability to perceive alternative realities and the courage to move toward those visions. And so part of that is having the presence of mind to perceive what's coming next, to be tuned in and to you know, be tuned into culture, be tuned into people. And then as ideas emerge, it, it takes a lot of curiosity to understand what that nascent thing is. And it takes a lot of courage to keep going and battle all the hurdles that a typical large organization puts in there. So many organizations have rigid innovation processes, and they're great to vet ideas in a certain way and to make sure that the ones that you're moving forward with are big enough. But they're not so great as identifying how something might evolve in, frankly, kind of a mysterious way. Fascinating. I'm curious, two questions. One is... You're kind of a self-proclaimed, you know, professional futurist. I'm kind of wondering, like, when 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 you say that, when you think about that, like, how, how does one define that, and how do you kind of compartmentalize that and, and make it palatable to other folks? Question one, and then the second one is, you know, I'm curious to get a bit more context as to kind of your upbringing and, you know, a as a as a as a human. <laughs> where you grew up and kind of what that life was like, and then kind of how that that dovetails into you becoming professionally into the roles and jobs that you've had up until this point. You know, the first one, I wouldn't call myself self-proclaimed. You know, I was asked by companies that I worked for to tell me what are the trends. So starting in the food business, the first half of my career was in food, and I'll kind of answer your second question on how I got there. But I was always asked what are the new trends in food and how do we develop new products to get there? And uh, when I arrived at Levi's, the great brand president we had at the time, Robert Hansen, uh, you know, one of his first questions was, what's the cultural zeitgeist? What are the, what's the sensation of people at the moment and what's going to happen in the next three to five years that we need to know about in order to move forward? Now, that both on a macro-cultural basis, but also in terms of fashion trends and things like that. So, you know, Robert Hansen was a visionary. He still is in, in another business. But, you know, the, asked me to do that, and then I ended up doing that, uh, I think, three or four times over the course of 10 years, and it just became that. I did get some professional training at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto and some other specific coursework. So... You know, part of it was organic, but part of it was, you know, specific training. And then I developed my own methodology, which is outlined in, in my book, Craving the Future. So that's that. And now you asked about from whence I came. So I grew up in a small village, so to speak, called Whitefish Bay in Wisconsin on the shores of Lake Michigan. And, you know, it was a pretty idyllic frankly, sheltered existence, kind of like a Andy Griffith Mayberry scenario where kids could play late into the night, you know, without fear and the parents weren't concerned. And it was just, you know, it was, it was a, a frolicking, wonderful moment. Uh, my parents were both educators and they worked at night. And uh, so uh, somehow I sparked my curiosity to learn how to cook. I started with some of the obvious dessert Dishes, crepe Suzette and Cherry's Jubilee, and worked my way up to things like Beef Wellington. And then my father was an aficionado of fish. He basically, that's all he ate was fish. And so we would go to this fish store called Smith Brothers and this bountiful uh, display of all sorts of interesting fish. And we'd pick a bunch out and come home. Mom would cook it, of course. And um, so, you know, that, that childhood is pretty anchored to me. My best friend in life is from childhood. I still get in touch with him every day, basically. But then some other things happened when I was young as well. So my childhood 
age 10, 11, 12, you know, earlier, marked by the assassinations of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and uh, the race riots that were happening at the time. And then something that was even more pointed and more local. In Whitefish Bay, we had these beautiful elm trees that would cascade over the streets and form a wonderful canopy. They attracted a beetle that was starting to be bothersome for the trees. The um, community decided to spray the deadly chemical DDT. We had to stay in our homes, put tape on our windows and doors, and helicopters would come by and fog the street with this chemical. It's the, it was mentioned in the book of um, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. It's in her book. And I was there. You'd come out later and there'd be dead animals all over the street, dead birds and dead critters. And that affected me greatly. And as it turns out, Milwaukee is the birthplace of Earth Day. The very first Earth Day happened in 1970. As a movement, it's quite remarkable. The very first Earth Day attracted 20 million people in over 100 countries. Not bad for pre-internet kind of action. I started an organization called SMOG, Save Milwaukee or Go, and it was an environmental action organization, and, and I sponsored uh, and organized the first Earth Day program at our school in conjunction, had um, local politicians attend. So the, I have these two converging paths, culinary interest and environment and ecology, and I spent a number, I, I spent a lot of the rest of my years sort of mingling in both and seeing how those two paths um, commingle, and I'm, I'm kind of still in that place. That's awesome. So you grew up there, you're, you're at like early teenage years at that point. Did you, where, where'd you go to high school? I went to high school in Whitefish Bay for a little while. I moved to uh, Minneapolis, finished a couple of years there. And by then I was kind of uh, connected to uh, culinary. So I went to Michigan State University Hotel Restaurant School. Actually, during high school, I, I went to culinary school instead of regular classes. I took a bus three days a week to a culinary school. My first jobs were culinary. So I eventually became sous chef at a restaurant and started a catering business serving breakfast in bed to people. So that was a wacky and wonderful experience coming into people's homes early in the morning, surprising them in bed with the gourmet meal. <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty wacky three years. I actually had uh, three or four teams around the city uh, of Minneapolis doing that with me. So yeah, that was fun games. That's neat. I, it's always interesting to hear when people have, it, it's not even the entrepreneurial part, but just like work in their background. Like there, there are people that are, you know, go to school their whole life until they're like 21 and they've never worked a day. There's others that like have worked from the age of 10, right? Starts with a paper route or something back in the day. And I'm fascinated by that because I really do think it informs kind of worldviews as an adult as well. Those that, um, you know, are hard in the academics, those that grew up with a silver spoon and or those that, you know, had to or chose to, to work from an early age. I think I had a, a, a work ethic early. I think I probably, well, I remember shoveling snow in Milwaukee. And I was probably 12 or so. And there was something wonderful. It, the snow would just keep on coming all night long. And I was out there until 1 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning getting paid, you know, five bucks to shovel some sidewalk. And then I remember just falling down in a big snow puddle, so to speak, lying down, looking up at the sky for the flakes to come down. I mean, the sensation of that was amazing. And I would say... I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but I'm a very sensory-oriented guy. I believe in sensory stimulation in order to facilitate and foster innovation. And that's a big part of what I do, is create sensory immersions in order to foster innovation. That's cool. I want to hear I want to hear more about that. And I'll 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 earmark that as like kind of a question to get back to it. Cause I I, I really do want to double click on some of what you're up to now and, and, you know, some of the, see behind the curtains, if you will. So you are, you're, you're still in the Midwest. You are doing breakfast in bed for folks. You're still steeped in the culinary world. Is the environmental stuff not on hold, but kind of in the background at that time? Yeah, it, it's in the background. You know, I had always had this vision of making money in the restaurant business in order to fund environmental action. 
But, you know, I, I, it was, there were definitely two paths. Because I actually went to ecology camp a couple of years as well. So summer camp to learn about ecology. It's hard to pick a path. Uh, I don't know why I picked one versus the other completely, but I think it probably was this vision of make a lot of money and be an environmentalist. Not as easy as said as done, but it it always was in the background and it emerged more strongly when I was at Levi's. Yeah, that's really cool. I can see how there's, you know, that's like an environment where you can, you know, still, you know, working in a large organization, but have impacts on environmental policy, environmental decisions, you know, supply chain decisions and things like that. So yeah, maybe, maybe bring us up to speed. You were, how long were you at Levi's for? Was it almost a decade? I was at Levi's for 10 years. So the first couple of years were really digging out. At the time, Levi's was truly on the brink of bankruptcy, and a lot of uh, decisions had to be made. There was a lot of reorganizations. But again, you know, the, the leaders there were very insight and foresight focused. It's like, we need to understand our consumers, and we need to understand the culture in which they operate and where this is going in the future so we can intersect the future. Whole other teams working on operational efficiency and uh, financial aspects and things like that. But, you know, they, they really have the wisdom to say we need to understand people and, and culture. What was interesting to me, and I think it was a truism, even sustainability. So we were following the trend of sustainability, I think, back in 2002, right? It was really early. This is Cameron Diaz and Leonardo DiCaprio driving Priuses in Hollywood, right? That, like, that was sort of an earmark of sustainability. But given, okay, now if you say I was back in 1970 into the environmental movement, now we're in 2001 and we had to meet in secret at Levi's. We were, I was, I remember getting yelled at early days there. This shouldn't be a priority. That sustainability shouldn't be a priority. We got bigger fish to fry. And you know, there's some truth to, to bigger fish for sure. But I think what happens with innovation, because I got laughed at when I was projecting that social communities were going to be big, right? In 2004, we were, or three actually, we were projecting that two trends. One was around community and one was around content meritocracy. Content meritocracy being that people's social status in life would be measured by the degree to which they produced content, music, stories. This was before Facebook. This was before YouTube, right? Before any of that. But there are signals. If you're a futurist, you're able to to follow clues that are happening around the world. But I remember getting laughed at or maybe even yelled at on these early things around sustainability, around social communities, around content. And that's that's what futurists often face, right? They People either want to be comfortable with knowing that something's going to happen soon or they want to laugh at the things that are yet to come. Uh, and so um, definitely that happened in, in those days. And do you find that to be a consistent theme now? I mean, it, that seems to be less generational and more just like a human, you know, centered aspect. Yeah, I think it's very much of a human thing. You know, for me, as a futurist, probably the common thing, if you say you're a futurist, if I said to you, I'm a futurist, what would your comment be back to me? I think what I would say is some people would say, for example, oh, the future, you mean flying cars, right? And they've been saying that for years. Do you know how many companies are making flying cars right now? 200. So it's like you're saying that's today. It's not even the future. It's not even the future. It's right now. And and, and st- still people would probably say, oh, the future, you mean flying cars? I think there's a, there's companies in Oregon and you know they're in production mode. It's not, it's not a, it's not a fantasy. So I think what happens is, is people sort of want the future to be a fantasy, right? And they want it to be a thing that'll never happen. I mean, it would probably be true with things like psilocybin mushrooms. And it's probably true to some degree about the metaverse, right? It, even though it's happening, it still feels like a thing that's not going to ever amount to anything. And I think that's that's kind of the the trick of it is if you're a really good futurist, you're able to identify the scenarios that are likely to amount to something. The author I was talking about is Yuval Noah Harari. He wrote Sapiens. 
and a brief history of tomorrow in a, another book that I read recently, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Anyways, he's like a professional historian, but based on that, he's also, you know, making these pretty big uh, predictions about the future. And it's very fascinating because you start to see the overlap and convergence of, you know, science and nationalism and politics. And it, I, I, it's fascinating to me. And it's, it's based on a, on a lot of things that are happening today, but where those intersections and things start to merge, which in, you know, in the description of some of the work that you shared with us in advance, it's, it, it is that kind of convergence of, you know, innovation and, and, and other things kind of coming together. I, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And so you, you were at Levi's for a while, you did your stint at Gap, and then you, you, you kind of made a big pivot there, right? It was kind of no longer working in large organizations. Yeah, I had a really uh, excellent professional coach named Mr. Bach. Oh, tell me more. Tell me more. Uh, one of the most wonderful humans on earth. Yes, I'm not sure exactly why I chose Mr. Bach, but the chemistry was good. I think the location was good. We're both very close to each other in Marin. I think meeting face-to-face -face for me is super important, and we were able to have coffee together. But more importantly, Mr. Bach, enabled me to think more expansively and to, again, if I kind of parallel to Levi's, go to my roots, go to my roots of what I think is, is systemically valuable, important, and relevant to me and would bring joy to my life. You know, I did look at a number of different organizations to take jobs at and eventually decided to form my own and with a, a specific thesis around futurism and innovation. And it's been fantastic ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember that being a, a pretty big transition for you. I mean, after a decade at Levi's and four or five years at Gap, it's a, it's a it's honestly a bold decision to kind of go it alone. But you had a you know obviously, as you said, a, a, a pretty clear thesis and, and a belief in yourself, and then a, a good network. And I think it sounds like you still are doing work for a lot of uh, well-known brands, and, and I'm sure some larger than others, and. But tell us what it's been like to kind of pivot out and become a business owner, an author. Uh, you were doing podcasts. You are a guest speaker. I mean, out in this world, it's it's cool because you have a, a bunch of different, I guess, modalities for how you kind of interact with with other folks. But maybe you can tell us a bit more about what you're up to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have a, a portfolio in life that are things that make you feel fulfilled professionally as, as well as personally. So I would say it's been a healthy, I think we're at now year six, a healthy six years since starting the business. I've had the pleasure of really doing very interesting projects with very interesting people. And at the same time, having my life in balance, getting the exercise I need of enjoying other aspects of life that are not just work, using my the creative side of my mind uh, and I'd say on balance, I'm a little more right brain than left brain. And so it, it, that I'm playing to my strong suit. And so, you know, at the same time, you, you in this consulting business, you have to live with um, the unexpected. And of course, for many people, the pandemic was one of those unexpected things that changes, you know, your trajectory and changes your, your desires. But I think for me, expressing myself creatively and also if i think of a purpose in life inspiring creativity in others that's where i really get my juice and my fulfillment and i think having this business has enabled me to inspire creativity in others yeah it's so cool and i you know again it's kind of a bold decision to go it alone but you know for a lot of folks once you've kind of gone down that route it seems really difficult to imagine going back into a large organization and kind of working from the inside out. There's a lot of, as you allude to, challenges that come with owning your own business and being a consultant and an author. And But I've been really proud of you just to see you, you know, writing a book in and of itself is a daunting venture. And um, it's something I've, I've always wanted to do and haven't pulled the trigger on yet. So anyone that's done that, I, I just, I applaud them immensely. And it's cool to have that as a platform to get yourself out there and to do the public speaking. Not everyone, A, is good at that or has the appetite to do it, but it's really, it's a great way to kind of have a, a one-to-many interaction uh, where you can really speak to, to a lot of humans in, 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 in a, in short order in a consistent way. And then 
you know, the impact that you can have on a myriad of brands, a myriad of people. I mean, you and I talked a lot about this, but I was, I almost did like a little post this morning, but if you're working in your favorite company, let's say you, you love it to death, but you have a bad manager, it's so brutal, right? Like you work for these people that you don't get to choose, right? You kind of are, they are your manager and maybe you can try to pivot out, but you know, a, a good manager is kind of like a good professor, a good teacher. They can bring any subject to life. And the opposite is true. You know, you can have your favorite class and if you have a shitty professor, they just kill it, right? They, 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 they bring it all down and suck the, suck the air out of the room. And I, I was just thinking about, you know, being inside of a large organization, there's so many other things other than just doing the work that is required. And some of the freedom and flexibility and autonomy that comes from being on the outside and getting to help all these different people. And, you know, our, our work, a lot of it stems and we love helping leaders and teams and organizations kind of figure their shit out. And there's so much opportunity to do that. And I think now more than ever, we live in this moment that in so many ways, we have, we have everything we need to feed people and to shelter people and to, you know, do better in the supply chain. And, and, and yet there's just, there's also so much going on. It's kind of hard to find the signal through all the noise. And I think, you know, more people thinking about the future, more people making near-term decisions based on a long-term lens, more people engaging in, in helping kind of tap into their own creative endeavors and following their passions. And it's just, it's so easy to get lost. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're doing your work. And I remember the, the night very well that we, you know, went to a, a, a dinner in Mill Valley and brought, a, you know, a table full of, of cool people. It was a great network of folks at the time. And I, I, I remember at least, you know, four or five of the seven, but at that table was our friend Jeff Hamowy as well. And it sounds like you and he have stayed in touch. I'm curious, kind of, you know, what's that been like and, and what's coming up for you on the, on the Modern Elder Academy side? Jeff and I have stayed in touch and worked together in a variety of ways. Jeff had organized some amazing sustainability events one was around the future of, of materials and one was on the future of food. He gathered, I think, 40 or 50 entrepreneurs who were doing really interesting things, early stage things. Uh, so we had an event at Nike and people were making packaging for mushrooms. They were making fabric from a bacteria. And then in the food business, um, they were exploring what to do with the remains of, of coffee uh, shells uh, into flour or protein from crickets and you know, and so I helped uh, facilitate some of those sessions that Jeff led uh, overall. And uh, but we got connected, and I remember Jeff asking me, "What's important to me?" And you know, that's a hard question to answer when you're trying to make a living, right? Because sometimes people make sacrifices in their in what they do because they they need to make a living. So that went on, and and then I uh, I had met Chip Conley, who was the main founder of Modern Elder Academy. He had uh, done some sessions or done some speaking at at Gap in the past, but I met him really mostly at a meditation retreat, and we connected on that plane of, of meditation and stayed in touch. He, he eventually wrote the foreword for my book. So now these different paths converged, right, with Jeff and Chip. And now there's this Modern Elder Academy, and I attended that. And Modern Elder Academy is a place where people who are in their midlife, essentially, have, are in the process of ending one phase of their life, in the process of entering another phase, and maybe not clear about what that next phase is. So they're kind of in a liminal state of trying to figure it out, right? And a Modern Elder Academy has an excellent curriculum in order for people to assess their options and to get in touch with their roots. And then they have a really fantastic facility in Baja, Mexico, where I'll be teaching a workshop April 23rd through 30 called Being Present for Your Future. The workshop is very, very much based on my book, craving the future, but it's, it's, it's a lot about how do you move past that liminal state? Because they do, MEA does a great job of identifying you know, how to be in that and be comfortable. My job as a futurist is to help people see what's next, to follow those clues, to do something about it. 
right? To, to pledge yourself, to move toward those future. Uh, because, you know, like I mentioned before, it takes courage and curiosity to, to make your actual future happen. So I'm, I'm super excited about the workshop that I'll be co-leading with Jeff and Chip that week, and also just as a, as a platform for helping people move through. Thanks for being here, everyone. At Better, Faster, Further, we specialize in helping leaders, teams, and organizations maximize peak performance. Our goal as a business is to help build organizations that execute effectively, to create high-performing teams, and to help leaders bolster their overall capacity. We're unique and we're different. Our real world in the trenches experience comes from building and scaling teams and companies of all sizes. When you partner with Better, Faster, Further, you're not going to get a recent MBA graduate. What you will get is a team with decades of experience coming from industry veterans, academics, and leaders who have been in the most critical roles of startups, growing companies, and enterprise titans. Not only do we make recommendations, but we roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty right next to you. We truly believe that organizations are at the epicenter of social change. And by creating positive shifts within those organizations, we create ripple effects that have profound and lasting impacts on communities and society at large. If you want to become a more effective leader, if you want to create a high-performing team, or if you need to scale your company in ways that will stand the test of time, then Better, Faster, Further is for you. Visit our website at betterfasterfurther.com or email us directly at bff at betterfasterfurther.com. Thanks for your time. Now let's get back to our discussion. Those guys do such a good job. And I've, you know, quote unquote, advocated and sent quite a few clients down there who have had literally life-changing experiences coming out. I mean... Uh, one of the people I referred down there quit his job, ended up getting a divorce by choice. Like it was like like major shifts, but it was an opportunity for folks to disappear for a week and be surrounded by you know other people doing kind of major work on themselves and their professional careers, but in a really healthy and and, and conducive environment. And oftentimes we just don't make or take the opportunity to kind of reflect on those things in a supportive environment. And so, you know, Jeff has always, I, I'm a huge fan of, of Jeff. I, I don't know Chip personally, but i um, a huge fan of Jeff. His heart and mind has always been in the right place. He's always just, you know, surrounding himself with just really cool people and is always as helpful as he can be and, and vice versa. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. I'm thrilled that, that you're getting a chance to A, kind of uh, show your wares down there and participate in, as, a, as, a, as a professor and a mentor for folks. You offered me graciously the opportunity to get down there. My crazy life with kids on spring break and, and things in April is just a tough one for me. So I would love to get down there, but have not. But we've had some some good friends of ours who have participated in that as well. And Jeff used to live here in Mill Valley. I miss, I, I you know, greedily, I wish he was still here. So I'd get to spend more time with him. But uh, I need to sneak off and, and do some surfing down there and catch up with him and the family as well. Well, um, you know, Jeff is a, a big thinker. He's a visionary thinker. I, I'm in, I'm inspired by that, and I think that our our thesis of operating between his visionary work and um, just the, the concept of moving through liminal state, I think they're very much aligned. You know, so I think my work around mindful innovation very much encompasses putting your mind in a place where you're ready to welcome the future. So when I say being present for the future, or I think of Say What being a company that practices mindful innovation, it's getting your your head into the right place. Oh, they, they do a lot of meditation and yoga and beach walks and things like that. And then adding to that, I will deploy sensory immersion. So things that will stimulate your senses. Usually my workshops begin out of the blue with some, like no instructions as people walk into the room. There's usually music. There's usually things to touch and smell and taste. And, and I'll ask people to identify what memories or stories or ideas are stimulated simply by smelling orange or oregano or basil or pepper or uh, touching you know, the outside of an orange that has kind of this oily texture to it and the music that's playing. Uh, and it's remarkable. I mean, it's very emotional, as a matter of fact. 
we think of the the memories sometimes good, sometimes melancholy. But what that does is open up new neural pathways in your mind, and it starts to relax you just from a, a neuroscience perspective. I'm a big fan of a Dr. Paul Zak, who is a neuroeconomist, and he is the author of a book called Immersion. That these experiences release oxytocin and dopamine in your mind. In other words, they relax you. Oxytocin is the love hormone. It relaxes you, makes you feel at ease. Dopamine is kind of the happiness hormone neurotransmitter. It it it, it generates some some joy and enthusiasm. So those two things together put your mind in a place where you can access your subconscious, right? So you think of mindfulness is the non-judgmental acceptance of the omnipresent. You're at peace with who you are and where you are in this very moment, despite all the chaos and perhaps fears of the future or memories of the past. You are here at this moment and you are safe and you are loved. You're more likely to be able to access your subconscious and that subconscious is, are, are those roots, right? There are things that maybe you've loved that are important to you, that are part of you, but you're reluctant to bring out because of societal obstacles, because of practicalities, because of histories or whatever. So if you combine the ability to think that way and then with the kind of the safe space and environment that MEA provides, you know, it's really going to be a magic experience. And I just find when I've done these things in the past, workshops for large organizations in the past, they're always surprised and kind of blown away. And then all of a sudden they go on and start creating things that they couldn't otherwise possibly imagine. Yeah, I love the idea of just, you know, kind of my words, creating space or like new environments for those ideas, for those concepts, for those feelings or emotions to like kind of percolate up, right? Like they're out there, but like you, you, oftentimes we fill it with noise and fill it with busyness and activity and that mindful innovation, I, I, I just hearing you say it, it makes more sense than just reading the words to me. Cause I, 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 I can, I can very much appreciate and value almost the forcing function of having to remove yourself from living in Marin County and go to Mexico and like, just change the environment, change the scenery, change the stimulus, and then have a structured program in place to help optimize those environments. I think it's awesome. And, and, and as you said, if you can get out of your day-to-day rhythms in a positive way, just amazing things happen. And I, I, I think I, as much as anyone, would, would definitely benefit from that. I mean, the busyness of being a father to three and a business owner and running kids around to sports and just trying to stay healthy. It's like, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm working hard just to almost stay in the same place. And like, it feels really good when you feel like you're optimized and working towards the future and excited about that, as opposed to just like kind of being reactive to, you know, the, the things that are thrown your way. Yeah. I, mean, I think optimized is a really good word putting yourself in the right conditions to be ready to move to what's next. Because of the nature of futurism, there's incredulity and skepticism built in, or just mismanagement of thinking. They tend to be either like wildly wrong or, you know, wildly optimistic or wildly pessimistic, wildly full of, of, of fear, or as what did Greenspan say, emotional exuberance. Irrational exuberance, I think, was his words. So there's there's always a path in between, and optimizing keeps you on that on that right path. And it's also, you know, the future is unique to each individual situation. You know, so people sometimes, if I notice I'm a futurist, they'll say, "What's the future?" And to which I respond, "The future of what?" Right? If you're in healthcare. And that's your world. That future is going to be really different than the automotive world or the food world. So I think the context is super important, too, and people sort of forget that. Absolutely. I mean, the thing that I think is interesting, not only about Modern Elder Academy, but, you know, I'm 48. And so, you know, one would argue I'm in like that, those middle years, if you will, and still very active. You know, I've got a ninth grader, a seventh grader, and a third grader. So just like life is busy and full and married and 
working hard and doing all that, but definitely, you know, a sense in me of like trying to figure out, you know, instead of figuring out who I am and what I want to do, it's like really optimizing who I am and what I want to do. And then really starting to think more about the future and the future for my children, the future for planet earth, the future for my family, the future for myself. And there's so much wisdom and experience that comes from folks who have been on the earth longer and have seen decades and generations of stuff, right? Like you lived at a time, I was born in 75. So like you lived in a time when um, that was bef- before I was born and had these experiences. And there's a great deal of, of, of insight and wealth and experience that can come from that. But we also very much live in a, I don't want to call it millennial, like the, the age group, but like a very here and now and immediate impact and people are very entitled and I, I want to be promoted and I want to be a partner right away. And like, not a lot of people have the same kind of work ethic. And so how do we begin to bridge, you know, the tenure and, and experience that comes with somebody, let's say 50 plus years old with somebody who's kind of emerging and coming out of college. And, you know, the one thing I think is very clear is you don't have to be old to be wise. There's very young, savvy, smart people, and there's very ignorant old people. So th- I, it doesn't always come with age, but in, in co- speaking in, in general terms, there is a, there's an infusion that both can learn a lot from the other. And I, I, I would love to see that happen more often. Well, I think you're living proof of age, not being a factor in wisdom. That's one of the things also that Chip uh, Conley learned because, you know, he was at Airbnb. I think he was in his late fifties. The average person there was, you know, 27. And so the concept of reverse mentorship is important. I think just so let me kind of diverge back a little bit in that I think over time, people only understand the future. Many people understand the future after it's happened, if you know what I mean. You know, the, 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 the value of it, because you don't really appreciate what you're in the middle of and how that's going to affect your life later. But so going back to reverse mentorship, I think it's super cool and, and true the way Chip is looking at that and the Modern Elder Academy is looking at reverse mentorship. And frankly, I am doing that presently as I study to be a sommelier. The, the value of being a sommelier, first of all, it's deep in my roots as a culinary professional. And I was drinking really, really nice wine at a very early age, um, not really understanding it, but but drinking it. And so as part of my culinary roots, it's also tied very much to my sensory immersion thesis because it's a very comp- being a sommelier is very complicated beyond you know how to open a bottle and pick a wine. You know, there for this level at the moment, I'm, I'm studying 50 regions, probably 50 different grapes, and for any one of them, there's about a hundred characteristics that you have to know, and so you have to like trigger your ability to sense different flavor and texture characteristics and then register in that, that in your brain and then connect it to a type of a region and a type of grape, right? And then the effect of that grape on food. But what's interesting to me is a, a lot of the people in the class are young and I'm, I'm learning from them. I'm learning their fresh perspective, even though maybe they don't have all, all the years, but it's been really delightful for me and actually studying feels almost like I'm in college because it's a hard course. It's a non-easy, I'm, I'm spending probably three hours a day studying this. So it's really inspiring from the, that perspective. Roots, reverse mentorship, sensory immersion. Yeah, and like continuing to strive to be a white belt, right? Like people I think strive to become a black belt and they want to become an expert. And once they get there, they kind of hold on tight. Uh, you know, I really appreciate it when people take on new, new skills and new challenges and like sucking at something is really hard, right? It's like, it's hard on the ego. And sometimes it's, it, it's hard on just the body to go learn something else, but it's really, really cool to stay, you know, pliable, at, at, especially as we get older. So I think it's cool to, to, to have that kind of concept as well. Guessing the wine, because I, I was at class last night and we were in the Rhone. Guessing the wine is such a bingo. You know, we we, we looked at some Beaujolais and, and we looked at some Pinots and then we, that region is famous for their Syrahs. And so like taste of the Syrah, it was big and beefy, very barnyard meat, 
wet leaves, forest floor, cloves, cinnamon, I mean, a pretty complex, robust wine. It could not be anything but a Syrah from Cornus. And I'm like, boom. And, and, and when, when that happens, it hasn't happened a lot for me. Every once in a while it does. But the more it happens, like the more all of a sudden you feel, wow, I'm really accomplishing something, kind of able to do this. Some wines are easier than others because they're more distinctive. But it's a joy. It's like this, you know, immersion puzzle, sensory puzzle. Yeah, it's so cool. One of our executive coaches, Rachel Basignani, is a sommelier. And, and we've had retreats where she's um, given us a very light introduction and tutorial, but, um, you know, walked us through some of that. And when you actually realize, like, how vast the optionality is and even the, the way to like choose the words of like what you are tasting you just you know rattled off like seven very descriptive words that that actually mean things in that world but um mossy and oaky and slaty and charcoal and peppery and you know all that stuff it's just very fascinating it's a whole world in you know in and of itself yeah it's it's been delightful and just in terms of you know aging I can be a psalm, you know, at any age. And it is one of those things, like, it's great when people are young and fresh and have that energy to do it. But I don't think you age out of being the psalm, you know, the, the wise old psalm and the suit, the cup. <laughs> that could be me. I kind of feel the same way about the work we do, in, you know, coaching, consulting. You know, I feel like that's something as long as, you know, even if you're not physically able, you know, in this virtual environment, but as long as you're mentally sound, I feel like that's something that you can do for, for, for you know, years to come. And I enjoy that and, and very much embrace that. One question for you, and Adam, I, I, I want to create some space for you as well. But given the work that you're doing, are there kind of some meta trends or, or just things that you're thinking about or, or excited about the future that's kind of coming down and, and, and anything that you think, you know, maybe in a more general sense, I know that it's very nuanced given healthcare versus automotive versus whatever. So not that, not that specific, but just like, where's your head at in relation to things that are coming down the pike for, for us as, as, as humans and on planet earth and, and just doing the work that we may do. I mean, I think one of the things is the personalization of everything we're getting closer and closer to that being better and better. And uh, especially from perspective of medicine, uh, healthcare, medicine, just how, how really understanding your biome, your genome, and how that relates to the very specific care for you versus, you know, the clinical trial and what they say is, is right. You know, it's been true with things like, apparel and cars and like making things pick your own fabrics and but i think we're really getting to that space where that's going to affect more things around food and healthcare. so i think that's a broad theme another broad theme that i'm, I'm looking at a little bit more on the digital e-commerce world because i'm giving a a, key, uh, a keynote for an e-commerce conference but i think it applies i think i'll call it filling in the middle in other words, we live in a very divisive society. Trust has declined for 30 years. We're at the lowest point of trust um, that we've been in 30 or 40 years, to the point where I think Pew did a study about the degree to which you trust each other, not even a political party or an organization, just somebody else. And it was like, you know, I don't know, 60% of the people don't trust each other. <laughs> so there's that. And then there's always been a middle but if you think politically and culturally, the middle's been kind of small. It's been like far left, far right, you know, very dichotomous, binary. And I have sort of this bizarre theory related to that is that if you think of technology over the last 40 years, it's been based on binary, right? On zeros and ones, right? Everything's like some version of binary language, and I think that leads to binary choices. Even if you look at organizational typology, you know, Myers-Briggs, and people tend to get categorized, right? Well, politically, if you look at things, the, the middle's actually getting bigger than the left or the right, yeah? And I think that's true in a lot of different categories. In quantum theory, if you think of quantum mechanics, quantum is about multiple shades of gray, right? And so I think that, just as binary affected our society 
in terms of the level of divisiveness and polarity that exists. I think quantum, as it evolves, is going to create this middle that's bigger and more interesting and more evolutionary and perhaps even more flexible. I think in the you know context of e-commerce, there's this metaverse thing happening, and then there's this real thing happening, right? And there's a lot of money going into metaverse, and people in Generation Alpha are kind of in that world and they'll probably, you know, exercise a lot of, they're spending money, they're spending real money in the metaverse. But then you've got, even though Etsy is not an exact representation of the crafted world because of what they've be, become, but the crafted world is also getting bigger, right? Craftsmanship around leather and wood and fabric and fair, I, I'm on the advisory board of Fair Trade about crafted things that are to the earth, that are made by people who are making a living wage in environments that are healthy for them, that enable them to grow their communities. So I think there's these two spectrums, this kind of digital, fake, AI-driven thing, and then the tangible world, real world. And then there's this thing in the middle. And I don't know what the middle is yet, but I think my theory overall is Polarity combined with quantum uh, mechanics is going to lead to a very interesting middle over the next 20, 30 years. So that's another wild idea from Michael Perman. Yeah, it's very cool. I love it. And um, I'm actually excited about the next 20 or 30 years. I think we're either going to like burn the whole place down or we're actually going to like crack the code on some stuff and, and make it a better place. So you know, I think it depends on the day. My perspective on the future is either like really dark and dismal for my children. And I'm like, oh my God. Or other times it's like, we can actually do this. And I, 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 I tend to live in the more optimistic world where I, I put belief into it and really try to place my focus on, on, on the fact that, that, you know, deep down, we all want to do better and be better. And I think we can make that happen. Well, I mean, I think I'm probably in the crack the code camp, but I also think that what's Unfortunate but true is that people have to be more deliberate about selecting where they live. When I graduated college, I could go anywhere. You know, back in those days, you could take any job anywhere and you would find a life and you'd probably be happy and you wouldn't be worried about a lot of different things. That maybe is me saying it from a bit of a white man, you know, perspective. So that being intended are considered, I think, is an important factor. So apologies for, for that. However, I think now, more than ever, you have to be really careful about where you live because of climate change, because of the availability of water, because of political beliefs that are happening on a micro level and a state level. So it's, I think it's a really weird time. And, and that makes it, while I do believe cracking the code on some of the big issues, I don't think that code's going to get cracked. I think that part is going to get more and more divisive. And that part's it's unfortunate and a little scary. It is. It can all be a little bit daunting. Well, Michael, this has been awesome. A, it's just really good to, to see you again, to hear your voice. It sounds like you're up to just some you know amazing things. And I wish you all the best in your tour down in Todos Santos. And I'm, I'm jealous of you getting down there. And please make sure you say hi to Jeff for me. I'll send him a text here at some point. But um, Adam, thoughts, questions, feedback, questions or comments for Mr. Perman here? You know, today it was just a good day to be a good listener. I really enjoyed the conversation that the two of you were having and, and hearing more about you, Michael. Thank you, Adam. It was a really pleasure to meet you. And thanks for everything uh, leading to this day. Absolutely. And Michael, uh, if you would help our audience understand how to find your book, how to get a hold of you, you know, what's kind of the best contact. We'll put that in some of the, the show notes and stuff, but it'd be great for you just to share that as well. Uh, my book, Craving the Future, is available everywhere online. You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, whatever your, your favorite bookstore is, and I think you'll find Craving the Future on there. Uh, my email is Michael at saywhat.org. So that would be C-E-S-T-W-H-A-T, say what? And then the website is www.saywhat.org. So that would probably be the, the best ways to reach me. If you're interested in attending the 
uh, Being Present for Your Future workshop at the Modern Elder Academy. You can contact me directly or you can go to their their website is modernelderacademy.com and and learn all about my workshop and all the other workshops that they have on a weekly basis to help people um, think about their their future i look forward to you know continuing to stay in touch and track your progress and we've always been really good about just sharing referrals and networks and stuff like that so you know just know we're, we're here to help any way we can and um, we'll continue to be a voyeur on your life from the outside, but let us know how we can help. I'm happy to reach out to you as well. And anyone that's interested in getting a hold of Michael or learning more about any of the topics that we discussed today, you can reach out to us directly as well. Michael, thank you so much for your time. It was a total pleasure. Enjoy that that rare but beautiful sunny day you're having up in Portland. We're having one in Marin here after like three weeks of just deluge. So we're, we're thrilled to get some sunshine. Well, thanks. It's been a, a real pleasure to be here with you. I appreciate all the great questions. And I'll say, um, you know, I love collaborating. I love interesting collaborations with uh, various people on various projects. And uh, Mr. Bach, it's been really uh, a pleasure. You, you guided uh, my life in an important way at the right time and in the right way. And so I'm grateful uh, for your expertise as well. Well, right back at you. And I look forward to the future decades of, of work together and look forward to our next collaboration as well. So let's, let's, let's make that happen in the future. Thanks for joining us today on the Better, Faster, Further podcast. We're honored to have you here and to share these insights, stories, and best practices with you. 100% of our business comes from word of mouth. We focus on delivering a promise, building strong relationships with our clients, and then let the results speak for themselves. If you or someone in your network would benefit from speaking with us directly, please reach out. Our website is betterfasterfurther.com and we can be found on LinkedIn. Or you can email us directly at bff at betterfasterfurther.com. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. We hope you join us on our next episode. And until then, stay positive. Keep working hard and we'll see you on the flip side.